This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No my hari mai and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wished you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland toko inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of this show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is sponsored by CNF Legal in Fakatu Nelson. Did you know that in New Zealand roughly 1,500 people die every year without a will? Don't be one of those people. And be wary of DIY. Homemade wills can be trickier and take longer to get through probate. So don't cut corners, it will cost you and your loved ones in more ways than you can imagine. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life. So give Marie or Robin a call on 03 545 8080. Kia ora and thank you for joining me for episode 6 of Death Walker's Guide to Life. In today's show, we're going to be exploring how our fear of death is the root of many, many problems in our world today. I know this from my own personal experience. For many years, I found it impossible to talk openly and honestly about death. I repressed my fears and this impacted on my ability to support those I loved. More recently, after being widowed but being fortunate enough to find love again, my fear of death has resulted in anxiety and panic attacks. It's a dysfunctional way to live, so I've focused on understanding and expressing my emotions. But the reality is that I'm still a work in progress. Does our inability to reckon with the fact we are perhaps mere mortals have disastrous consequences for humanity? This is a question I'm keen to explore in this episode. I grew up with parents who reminded me often that we were mere mortals. By definition, a mere mortal is one who is not God, but since my dad was an atheist, perhaps he had a different understanding. He was also an environmentalist, and I think his belief seemed to inspire him to be a better custodian of our land. By the way, during my research into the meaning of mere mortal, I came across a book titled No Mere Mortals, Marriage for People Who Will Live Forever. So there you go. Yet while some people believe they will live together forever and act accordingly, there's plenty more who live like there's no tomorrow and are perhaps in some ways their materialism develops into toxic consumerism. Coming up in today's show, I will be speaking with Rachel Menzies, who with her father Ross Menzies has written several books about what our fear of death drives us to do. While the Menzies acknowledge that some of the consequences have been glorious, they examine numerous others that have been destructive, leading to global conflicts and genocide. They hypothesize that our unconscious dread of death 
has led to rampant consumerism and overpopulation, driving the global warming and pandemic crises that now threaten our very existence. So in a terrible irony, perhaps Homo sapiens may ultimately be destroyed by our knowledge of our own mortality. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life, and now it's time for Death in Print. In this segment, in each show, I talk about a new book or article that has something interesting to say about death and dying. Today, I'm going to be introducing you to Rachel and Ross Menzies' latest book, Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society, which has just been published by Alan and Unwin and is out now in both Aotearoa, New Zealand and Australia. But before I do that, I'd like to tell you a little bit about why this book appealed to me so much. In 2018, I wrote an essay called Scared to Death, which opens with a scene that demonstrates my almost pathological fear that my beloved husband David will die. He was leading some of our Australian friends on a challenging five-day tramp from Klondike Corner near Arthur's Pass to Hokitika, which involves crossing three mountain passes, Harmon, Whitehorn and Browning. Three days later, back at home, just before bed, I learned there was heavy rain warning in the area where they were tramping. I went on to read, not a great thing to do before you go to sleep, but I went on to read that the heavy rain um, can cause steep crevices um, to form on Whitehorn Pass, which is a glacier. Later that night, I woke up at 3am, no surprises there, and lay awake worrying for a long time. Then I had a massive panic attack, imagining David had fallen into a crevasse. I called the experience an awake mare. It was just as vivid as your most horrible nightmare, and I was just as incapable of using rational thought to extract myself from it. Unfortunately, before I got better and my anxiety lessened, it got a lot worse. My fear that he would die manifested, often as acute anxiety. So this is just a little bit I'd like to read from my essay, Scared to Death. Occasional bouts of anxiety are normal. Technically, they become an anxiety disorder when they do not go away. In my experience, anxiety feeds on anxiety. Without any effort on my part, it can soon become a bloated creature. A bit like a goldfish with dropsy that's been turfed into the toilet but won't flush away and is left bobbing among the detritus, its wee mouth appearing to gasp for breath. One of the main symptoms of anxiety, insomnia, also means it's really easy to get stuck in the toilet bowl. All of a sudden, I am consumed by anxious thoughts about simple everyday things. For me, who has already lost one mate in this lifetime, their anxiety can often be fixated. I feel anxious when David's driving home from work after a long day. I feel anxious when he's clearing the gutters. I feel anxious when he uses insect spray. I don't verbalise this anxiety because I know how silly it is. I don't want to wrap my husband up in energetic cotton wool, so I subconsciously gravitate towards opportunities to be distracted and disconnected. The upshot of this is that I can't sleep, find it difficult to get out of bed in the morning, convince myself that I'm too busy to exercise, too busy to make myself a decent meal, and too wound up even to phone a friend. You can't cheat on anxiety. Emotions are stored in the body before they become conscious thoughts. This loop continues indefinitely until I attempt to control my thoughts, 
to stop worrying about the future, future by focusing my awareness on the simplest things. Am I holding my breath? By the way, Scared to Death was published in a book called Headlands, New Stories of Anxiety, which was published by Victoria University Press in 2018. And my essay, Scared to Death, is currently being adapted for the screen by producer David Jacobs and director Mia Maramara. And the working title for the film adaptation is, surprise, surprise, Goldfish. (laughs) So there's more about the goldfish. And so stay tuned for news about that. Anyway, my essay does go on after that experience that I share about my fear of death about David to explore a range of topics to do with the extent to which fear of death may be a major cause of anxiety. And at the time when I was writing this, I thought it was quite an original idea. Um, But of course, there are no original ideas. Um, Everything is derivative in a way. And little did I know that psychologists and researchers around the world, like Rachel Menzies and her father Ross, had been researching this topic for years and years. So their book, Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society, is an encyclopedic look at the fear of death and how it manifests. There are chapters on how we bargain with it by subscribing to religious beliefs or by investing in immortality projects and other creative works. There are chapters on how love may in fact be the root of all fear of death and specifically how attachment theory plays a role. There are chapters that examine the consequences of death denial when we are diagnosed with a life-limiting illness and how our refusal to let go can be caustic. And there is, of course, a detailed chapter looking at death, dread and mental illness. Finally, the book provides several antidotes. There is a chapter on the death-positive movement of which this show is part, and the role of stoicism and neutral acceptance. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. In today's show, I'm delighted to welcome Rachel E. Menzies. Rachel completed her honours degree in psychology at the University of Sydney, taking out the Dick Thompson Thesis Prize for her work on the dread of death and its relationship to obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. Beginning in her undergraduate years, her work on the fear of death and psychopathology has been published in Clinical Psychology Review, Australian Clinical Psychologist and several leading international journals. Rachel was the lead editor of Curing the Dread of Death, Theory, Research and Practice, and having completed her master's and doctoral degrees in psychology in 2020, she has recently taken up a postgraduate fellowship at the University of Sydney. She makes regular appearances on national radio in Australia and at public events such as the Festival of Death and Dying. Kia ora, Rachel, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life. Thanks so much for having me here, Kerry. You're very, very welcome. So what I wanted to do to start our conversation today is just to read a very brief excerpt from the beginning of your book. Basically, you write, by the end of the first decade of life, death has become the worm at the core of the human psyche, nibbling away at our sense of security. And just a little bit before that bit, you wrote earlier in that chapter that the fear of death is documented in under fives and that a mature understanding is not necessarily required for a fear of death to emerge. So I want to start by asking you, what's your earliest memory of death yourself? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, 
I guess my earliest memories would be the deaths of pets and the deaths of animals. Um, I remember going on road trips or being on long drives in the car with my parents and seeing dead animals, you know, on the side of the road and asking my parents about it and them telling me, oh, they're not real animals, they're just stuffed animals on the side of the road. Um, so even, even, you know, myself as a kid, I had these memories of people kind of pretending death wasn't really happening. Uh, and I didn't lose a family member, uh, which was a, a great grandmother, until I was about a teenager. So most of my memories come from animals. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you mentioned, did you say that your parents sort of kind of were even playing that game a little bit when you were a young child? Because you've written this book with your father, I understand, Ross Menzies. Yeah, tell, yeah. Me, tell me about how you teamed up as a writing duo, because it's not your first book together, is it? Yeah, that's right, Kerry. So we had been writing academically um, for several years together. So my uh, father and I are both clinical psychologists, and he, he works primarily with anxiety disorders. And we had been talking about um, fears of death. He had been thinking about how he was noticing themes of, of death being a common theme for the people presenting to him in his practice. I had a background in ancient history and in ancient history, I was seeing a lot of the relevance of themes of death and how they played out in different cultures in different cultures across various points in time. And so we started to write about this idea academically in academic journals, speaking about it at conferences. And then it was really only a year or two years ago that we started to think about doing a book like Mortals, which really aims to share these fascinating ideas and findings from psychology with the general public because we think it's tremendously important for these really fascinating findings to um, to be shared with the broader community. Mm. Yeah, I um, I studied psychology as part of my Bachelor of Arts many moons ago and mm. I remember the textbooks back then being, you know, some of them really being quite interesting but I think this is a real step forward now in the in the kind of text that just the general public can really enjoy and read and it's it's very narrative and story based and so full of so many facts and um, interesting figures actually you describe writing the book as a herculean task and and mortals for me feels like almost like an encyclopedia of our fear of death and what it means and the consequences of it um so i imagine it's deck it's a well it is an accumulation you you're not old enough for it to be decades of your research but it is an accumulation of decades of research that that has been done um is that correct yeah that's that's absolutely right so we really tried with mortals it mortals essentially tries to explore all of the different ways across millennia that humans have dealt with this fear and so because of that it's bringing together research from um theology research into religion research from archaeology from um politics lots of different areas of research to try and explore how essentially every single aspect of human culture can be seen as some form of a response to death. Uh, and this isn't a, you know, a, a particularly new idea. Ernest Becker in the 1970s won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death, which argues that the entirety of human culture is something we've developed as a species, as a way of dealing with this, this fear of death, that that culture that's striving for achievement, that's striving for success, 
um, that the creation of architecture or art that will live on after ourselves are all various different ways of giving us a sense of importance and significance in the face of death. Um, so these are that idea stretches back to the 1970s, um, but we've really tried to make models a kind of collection of all of the different aspects of human society. Mm. If that's one of the oldest pieces of research, what do you think is one of the most recent pieces of research or thinking around um, the fear of death that you've written about in the book? Yeah, that's it's a really good question. So probably the most recent idea is this, the central role of fear of death in mental health in particular, which, you know, again, we were talking before the show about how there are no new ideas. So Freud was writing about this in the early 1900s that he thought most, you know, neuroses came from the fear of death. But that's something that's only very recently been shown to be true or, or largely true in experimental laboratories. So in some of my research, we've had people with OCD, for example, um, and we've given them really subtle reminders of death. So a couple of questions about death buried in a packet of 100 other questions. And we find that when people with OCD are given these really subtle reminders of death, they spend twice as long washing their hands in a subsequent task compared to people who have had no reminder of death. And they have, this is all completely outside of conscious awareness. They're not aware that we're even measuring how long they're spending at the sink. We've put something on their hands and just asked them to wash their hands and then come back to the room. And yet we see this huge increase in their, the time they're spending washing. And we've done several different studies like that. So the newest idea in this space is probably the idea that fears of death might underlie a lot of the different anxiety disorders that people seek treatment for in, in mental health services. Mm, well, that's certainly been my own personal experience. Um, I was going to ask you this later, but it seems appropriate to jump in now. Um, do you think that the impact of, of the COVID-19 pandemic has had an impact on that as well? Because, I mean, I guess we're, we're very, you know, public health campaigns have linked hand washing and, you know, not catching the disease, which does lead to death um, very consciously in our minds um, in the last uh, 18 months or so, two years almost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So COVID from a psychological point of view has been basically seeing a real world social experiment play out. So for decades, we've been doing these kinds of studies in the laboratory, giving people very subtle reminders of death and looking at how drastically it changes all kinds of behaviours. Um, And what we've seen with COVID is exactly the sorts of things we would predict we see play out in the real world. Uh, And the interesting thing we've seen with COVID is the two responses people are typically taking, where some people will be going to desperate lengths to do anything they can to avoid death, um, such as increasing their hand washing, perhaps taking that beyond kind of government recommended measures, um, and then the other the other path people might take is just a, a denial, basically. So buying into this belief that COVID's not going to get me, um, it's either a hoax or God will protect me or for one reason or another, I just don't think this is real, um, you know, I'm not going to wear a mask and so on and so on. So we've seen these two responses play out in COVID, the desperate attempts to avoid death or the desperate attempts to deny death as well. Mm-hmm. Which I guess um, links into um, some of the findings that you've written about with 
regards to attachment theory, which I'll get to in a minute. But before I ask you about that in, in more detail, I'd love um, if you could just define for our listeners what, in a clinical sense, death anxiety is. What I mean, because some people are anxious about it, but that's not necessarily a, a pathology or a clinical manifestation, is it? So. Yeah, that's right. So death anxiety is, is basically an umbrella term for any kind of um, fear or dread of death. It could be for your own death. So it could be that the idea of your own non-existence or the idea of um, having a painful death troubles you. It could be fearing the loss of a loved one. Um, so that's generally what we mean when we talk about death anxiety. And it's it exists in some sense on a spectrum. So some people might have um, comparatively low levels of death anxiety. Um, other people might sit on the higher end where they're finding it's starting to actually, you know, take a, a big negative toll on their life. It might be getting in the way of them doing things they might like to do. Um, and that's more the, the end of the spectrum where people might actually start presenting for treatment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So on to attachment theory. Now, this was a fascinating chapter. Um, can you just to explain the the various the, the basis of attachment theory and the three basic types um, and how how they're formed and how they manifest in in um, death anxiety sure so attachment theory is basically the idea that our our current adult beliefs about relationships beliefs about can I trust and rely on other people um, come from our early life experiences. So if when I was growing up, I had parents or caregivers who were quite attuned to me and my needs, who I knew were there when I needed them, who were supportive, then I'm probably going to develop a secure attachment style, meaning that I'll develop a sense that I can rely on friends, I can rely on my partner, I'm comfortable being independent, but I also know I can turn to other people when I need them. That's what we call a secure attachment style. The other two attachment styles develop from different sets of experiences. So if I grow up feeling like my, my caregivers are unreliable, sometimes they're there for me, sometimes they're not. Um, perhaps they're kind of, they push me away when I kind of, you know, reach for them or turn to them. Then I might develop what's called um, an anxious attachment style, an anxious ambivalent attachment style where I'm desperately needing other people. I might be quite kind of clingy to other people and I'll bring those behaviours into my adult relationships or romantic relationships where I'm constantly fearing other people might leave me. Or I might develop um, an avoidant attachment style where to cope with the, the distress or fear of my parents not being there for me, I develop this kind of um, more intense independence where I push other people away. Um, it, it scares me to get too close to people because I've learned from my early experiences that I can't trust other people. So those are the three main attachment styles. And how that relates to death anxiety is that there's a lot of research on how secure, um, meaningful, close relationships seem to protect us from fears of death. Um, so for example, um, we know that people who have secure attachment styles tend to be much more comfortable with the idea of death. Um, and you, you can think of relationships almost as being a bit of a buffer for this fear. So we know in um, laboratories that when you give people these subtle reminders of death, they actually seek out other people much more. They report being much more interested in dating or much more committed to their current partner if they're in a relationship. 
there was one fascinating study where they again gave people these really subtle primes reminders of death buried amongst lots of other tasks and then they brought them into a room and just asked them to pick a chair because they were going to join this group discussion and they found that people who had been subtly reminded of death chose to sit closer to other people in that group discussion they moved their chair closer to other people which seems to suggest that when we're reminded of death we desperately seek out other people because we gain a sense of um, permanence or significance or safety with these relationships with others even if those people are strangers to us mm. I was just thinking back to your point about, um, you know, the two responses to COVID, either to be very anxious <laughs> about it um, and to, to, to try and control all the variables as much as possible, and, and then on the other hand, um, denying it, and whether there possibly, if you speculated, if there's any link between those, um, the avoidant, anxious avoidant kind of personality and denial around COVID, because you do write in the book that... Uh, those who are anxious avoidant tend to f repress their fears about death, don't they? Mm. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a really good question about whether people's attachment styles might predict which kind of, I guess, response they take. I'm I'm not sure off the top of my head um, what would that what that would look like. The the thing that's really been noticeable, I think, with COVID in terms of attachment is how. You know, we talk in the book about how important relationships are to mental health and obviously to fears of death in particular. And that's one of the really big ways that COVID has impacted most people, that actually it's made it really hard to maintain ties with people. We've been living in isolation. Um, we've been cut off for many people in particularly in, you know, in Sydney and obviously Melbourne from seeing people the way we usually would. And even with grief, even with bereavement, where people have not been able to attend funerals or be by the bedside of their loved ones who are dying that this this kind of coping mechanism we have of turning to loved ones has actually been disrupted in a lot of ways because of covid um, so it's not surprising that we've seen this big increase in mental health problems during covid mm. can one person switch from one attachment style to another or you've sort of stuck with it for life if you i mean you know, obviously therapy helps, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but it, is it is it other are there other life events that might also prompt someone to switch from one one to the other? It's it's a really good question. So it it seems like it's very possible for people to change attachment styles, um, particularly if they experience a transformative relationship. So someone might um, have always been a kind of avoidant attachment style, but then they might experience a secure, close relationship where they learn, I can, t I can trust my partner here. And that might help shift their attachment style to be more secure. Um, so it does seem to be something that can change over time based on our life experiences. Mm. Mm. Again, that's been a bit my personal experience because when my first husband was ill with cancer and dying we were in a lot of denial about it. I've talked about mm -hmm. this with my listeners before and um, and repressed a lot of my fears and realised that afterwards and have written a whole book about it. Um, but now what's happening with me in my new relationship with a very wonderful, supportive man who I can really trust, I'm not saying that I didn't trust my first partner, but I've, I've changed a lot since that experience. Um, 
I find that I get quite anxious about him and, and his potential death. And now I've written about that as well, um, trying to explore where that's coming from and why in particular, you know, so if he goes out, I mean, he is a an adventurer. So he sometimes goes and does things that are, you know, kind of risky in my in my, my eyes. So it's it's an interesting thing. I'm reading your book and, and then thinking about that from my own personal experience about how I seem to have shifted. Mm. And you've raised a really interesting point there, Kerry, which is the kind of the flip side of close relationships, where on the one hand, they can give us this feeling of safety and security, and they can keep those fears of death at bay. But of course, on the other hand, the more we care about someone, the more we love someone, the more devastating the idea of losing them is. So we talk in the book about how relationships are incredibly helpful, but they might not be a solution to the problem of death in and of themselves. Mm, mm, yeah, I get that. Um, you write a little bit about um, people doing everything they can to avoid death, particularly if they're when they're diagnosed with a life-limiting or life-threatening disease, and in pursuing and being in denial of the reality that, you know, they're dying, which is something I've explored too. What do you have to say about hope and where it fits into all of this? Is it, is it, is it destructive or constructive? It's, it's a really good question. I think it depends on how the hope impacts our behaviour. So if I'm, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with hope. I think hope can be really helpful but if the hope, if I'm so convinced that the outcome is going to be positive, that it stops me from doing things that might be necessary, such as talking about end of life planning or funeral planning with my loved ones or asking my um, doctor about, you know, prognosis, for example, if the hope stops me from doing things that I might actually need to be doing, then that's where I'd say it's starting to look like it's, it's not helpful. But if I'm still, you know, having conversations with loved ones, having conversations with my treatment team, making what might be necessary preparations, and yet still maintaining that sense of hope and wishing that things might turn out to be okay, then I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. And you write um, in the book too that there are sometimes, um, I can't remember the exact words you use, but there are there are positive consequences of our of our relationship we have with with our own mortality aren't they and you write about um well obviously religion has um you know benefits for a lot of people and that's one thing that we as a human race have have um relied on a lot over the millennia um the the other one is um creating works of art which you um call immortality projects sometimes so can you talk a little bit of that i mean that's where i get this real sense of the vast span of research that you've done that's gone into this book because you you know there's so many fascinating things that you've uncovered to explore those two topics in particular so so maybe starting with religion first <laughs> what do you like yeah what, what was the thing that you really uncovered in in the writing of this book about understanding that's its role so the big thing we uncovered with religion is that essentially every single religion that we know of offers some kind of solution to the problem of death, um, whether that's, um, you know, heaven in Christianity, for example, whether that's reincarnation, um, some kind of eternal soul. 
every single religion that we know of across thousands of years has offered something to address the problem of death and that religions which offered less compelling solutions aren't religions that have existed today so religions such as you know in norse mythology they had beliefs about the afterlife in the form of valhalla um, where you would feast and drink and battle and so on um, but you weren't there was not there was still the belief that the world would end eventually even when you reach this afterlife and that cut the that norse mythology didn't last forever there's a reason why no one now is walking around thinking about how they're going to go to valhalla one day because it was actually re replaced by christianity which told you no no you get to be in heaven forever and the world never ends you're reunited with loved ones and so on and so on so the religions that offered less compelling versions of an afterlife were replaced by those that offered much more appealing versions of an afterlife. Um, and there's, there are benefits to religion. It offers people, you know, a, a particularly sense of community, tying back to what we were saying earlier about the benefit of relationships. But of course, there are also costs to religion. You know, if we think just purely about religious conflicts around the globe, both historically and those occurring now, those come from that sense of my religion is right and yours is wrong because the other set of beliefs are a threat to my feeling of rightness and specialness and my um, my own belief in you know the afterlife, for instance. Um, so that that's the main idea that that we talk about in the section on religion in the book. Mm. And so from religion to art um, and the notion of of immortality projects. They, um, I, I think you quote Isabella Lende, who, who's asked, and maybe you could tell that story. <laughs> yeah, so Isabella Lende was interviewed, I can't remember what she was interviewed for, but the interviewer said something along the lines of, um, you know, something along the lines of, you know, how does it feel to know that your books will be remembered? And Isabel laughs and says that they won't be remembered. Oh, so, sorry, the interview says, how does it feel to know you'll be remembered, I think? And Isabel laughs and says, I'm not going to be remembered. And the interview is a bit confused and says, well, your books, they'll be remembered. And again, Isabel laughs and says, that's not going to be remembered. Nothing about me is going to be remembered. And it's a great quote because it sounds like she's being modest, but of course she's correct that in the thousands of years of human history, most people are not remembered and even people who in the prime of their career someone who's an award-winning author at some point in history is very unlikely to actually be remembered and this is it ties into the idea of immortality projects so immortality projects are essentially anything we do to extend the self in some way um, children having children would be probably one of the most common examples of immortality projects that i'm passing on my genes some part of me will outlive me um, but across human history we've seen glorious immortality projects the construction of the pyramids um, the artwork in the Sistine Chapel uh, Michelangelo had to fight the church for six months to insist on painting in the fresco style on the Sistine Chapel um, which is incredibly difficult to do to paint in fresco you have to paint into wet cement so if you make any mistake it can't be corrected but what it does is it ensures that that artwork will last for as long as the wall itself will last. So it ensures that your artwork will last for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
And so he had to fight the church to get the fresco style. And he did it quite clearly because he wanted it to be his immortality project. He wanted it to outlive him. And all of us have benefited from some of these immortality projects. We can visit the pyramids. We can see the beautiful artworks of Michelangelo. We can read the plays of Shakespeare, which were also clearly an immortality project. So we've benefited tremendously from Michelangelo and Shakespeare's fears of death. Um, that certainly, that can't be denied. <laughs> So um, to go full circle and to ask with my uh, right fellow writer's hat on, mm-hmm. was writing this book partly an immortality project for yourself and your father? I'm, I'm sure it was. Whether that's conscious or unconscious, I don't know. But I'm sure a big part of it was that this book will pro- hopefully outlive me. Um, but it won't be it won't be remembered forever. It might not even be remembered for another 10, 20 years. Um, that very few people are actually successful in obtaining some kind of immortality through their works. Yeah. And so just to get down to the sort of logistics of how, how you wrote the book together, was it kind of chapter about or did you collaborate together on I mean, could you just talk a little bit about how you wrote the book as a collaborative yeah, sure. thing? Yeah. So we basically split the chapters up in terms of each of us leading half of the chapters in the book. Um, so each of us led the research and writing of half of the chapters. Um, and then we read over each other's chapters, edited them um, to make sure that there was a, a kind of consistent voice across the whole book. Mm-hmm. How long did it take altogether? <laughs> uh, it took about... I want to say nine or ten months of of writing, roughly that. We'd been thinking the ideas we'd been thinking about for a while and, and talking about and planning, but the actual writing I think took about nine ten months. Mm. And so the book came out, I believe, mid, was it mid September in Australia? Yeah. That's so right. what sort of response has there been over there to it? It's it's been really positive. So we've we've done a lot of you know we've had a lot of interviews and things for the book. It's done well as well. It's been in the top the number one book of death and dying in the death and dying topic on Amazon for a while. I'm not sure if it's still there. Um, so it's been it's been really positive, and we've had a lot of people write to us saying that this book has really helped them with their own you know helped them coming to terms with death, which is really our goal in writing it. We it's probably an unconscious desire for an immortality project, but at least our conscious reasoning was we really hope that the book can help people come to terms with death, and also really understand the unconscious ways that their fear of death might be impacting behaviours they don't even think about. So how their their desires to achieve, to live large, to live in a nice house, to have children, um, to get that promotion at work, how this unconscious fear of death might be actually driving a lot of those decisions. And if we can start to understand those unconscious motivations for some of our choices it can help us really think about what do we really want to do what is our kind of authentic motivation here can i try and cultivate that acceptance of death to help me live in a more authentic way that's much more in line with things i actually care about or and value yeah well that's a 
great place to end the conversation because that's exactly what Death Walker's Guide to Life is all about and um, fitting in, you know, one tiny little jigsaw piece in a puzzle of death positive things that are happening around the world today, which is, I find really exciting, which certainly weren't around in my, you know, even probably more than a decade ago. So it's been something that's come out in in the last few decades. Um, so thank you very much for, for your time today. I do have one last thing to ask you, though. In, in each show, at the end of our kororo, or conversation, I ask my interviewee to nominate a song that they would like played at their own funeral or wake. And what I'm doing is I'm compiling a farewell songs playlist on Spotify. And, um, yeah, so if you could, I mean, I know it's hard to just nominate one, but is there one song that jumps out for you right now that you would like played at your own funeral or wake? That's a great question. Uh, my pick would be All Things Must Pass by George Harrison, which is a great meditation, in a musical meditation on impermanence. Great. Fantastic. I look forward to um, finding that and adding it to the Farewell Songs playlist. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. And yeah, and I encourage everyone to go out and buy a copy of Mortals. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I've just been chatting with psychologist and author Rachel Menzies. Now it's time for the second book end for the show, Death on Screen, when I briefly review a film, TV series or online resource that explores something to do with death and dying. Today I want to talk about a recent post from Maria Popova that I read online, of course. Maria describes herself as a reader, wanderer and a lover of reality who makes sense of the world and herself through the essential inner dialogue that is the act of writing. And I can really, really relate to this, as I do too. She is a self-styled cartographer of meaning in a digital age. For the past 15 years, she has been publishing a blog called Brain Pickings, which she recently renamed after describing that first name as unbearable. Now called The Marginalian, it's a thoroughly one-woman labour of love that aims to make all of our lives more livable. As so much great literature tackles death, dying and grief, and takes us on journeys through liminal spaces, The posts on Maria's website also often concern the inevitable end of our lives. I subscribed to her weekly newsletter and her most recent edition titled The Geometry of Grief, linked to a post she published in February 2020 called Immortality in Passing. It opens with the words of poet, painter and philosopher Etta Adnan, which are very on topic with the theme of today's show. Adnan writes... When you realise you are mortal, you also realise the tremendousness of the future. You fall in love with a time you will never perceive. The post also features the work of poet Liesl Mueller, who lived to 96 and reflects on what we can learn from her about what gives meaning in our ephemeral lives. In the post, Maria includes an audio recording of her own reading of one of Mueller's poems, Immortality which I'd now like to play to you. Immortality by Lisselle Miller In Sleeping Beauty's castle, the clock strikes 100 years and the girl in the tower returns to the world. 
so do the servants in the kitchen who don't even rub their eyes. The cook's right hand, lifted an exact century ago, completes its downward arc to the kitchen boy's left ear. The boy's tensed vocal cords finally let go the trapped, enduring whimper, and the fly, arrested mid-plunge above the strawberry pie, fulfills its abiding mission and dives into the sweet red glaze. As a child, I had a book with a picture of that scene. I was too young to notice how fear persists, and how the anger that causes fear persists. That its trajectory can't be changed or broken, only interrupted. My attention was on the fly. That this slight body, with its transparent wings and lifespan of one human day, still craved its particular share of sweetness. A century later. This is Death Walker's Guide to Life, and you've been listening to Maria Popova reading Immortality by Liesl Mueller which was published first on The Marginalian. The Marginalian is not only Maria's passion, but it's her livelihood. So if you enjoy what you discover, please remember to donate. And please also remember, if you've enjoyed today's show, to share it widely with your friends and family members on social media or let them send a link to them via email. Thanks so much for joining me. Fly away. You've been listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. Find out more about the show and how you can follow me, Kerry Sunderland, at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, ka mihi, a big thank you to CNF Legal for sponsoring the show. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life, so give Maria Robin a call on 03 808 or visit their website, cflegal.co. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast available by funding the Access Media Project. Other great podcasts from Fresh FM are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net.